Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. So today I'm really pleased to have on the podcast the wonderful Philip Santo. Hello, Philip. Hello, Marion. I'm not sure about the wonderful, but it's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. <laughs> now, I spoke to you, was it a year ago or two years ago? It might have been we met at an RICS event. Yes. And I said, you... I've seen, I think I've seen your face, you're Philip Santo. Will you be on my podcast? <laughs> and you said, how much will, what's the fee? How much yeah. will you pay me? That's right. That's <laughs> and right. I, admi- I admire that because as, as surveyors, we don't always charge for our time. So I admired you for that, but I'm not paying you for this. We're just no. having a nice chat. <laughs> the, uh, the problem is that with the type of business which I run now is that, um, you know, I do training presentations and, um, you know, that is my business, or a large part of the business is actually standing up and talking about uh, RICS products, uh, issues for complaint, uh, issues for surveyors, you know, how to avoid complaints. The, the usual sorts of things that the day-to-day surveyors really interested in. And um, when you get somebody like the RICS, not, not now so much, but initially people like RICS or other uh, providers of of CPD would bring up, so oh, do you mind just popping on having a chat about so and so? And whereas somebody who's in the business of selling double glazing or conservatories or um, some timber treatment or something like that might be happy to go along to promote their business, I'm not promoting my business when I'm speaking. That is my business, and so I, I understandably, like a dentist, you would say, oh, just come along, pop in and do my teeth, you know, while you're in the area, please. Um, you know, they expect to be paid. And I don't think it's something which we should take for granted. However, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I understand what you're doing. And um, it, it's good to be spreading the word about what surveyors and small practitioners get up to. So I'm happy to contribute. And have you listened to any of the podcasts? Yes, I have. It's been very interesting there as well. A wide range of people. It's nice to see a, a disproportionate number of women compared with the number of women in the profession. I'm very much in favour of you. I'm working hard at that. I, I, I know you are, and I'm all in favour of that because I could, there's no reason why we shouldn't have more and more women involved in it. What I, I do find interesting, because I know you will be asking about my career, and I find disappointing, it really, is hearing how many people have just ended up being surveyors. They've sort of come into the profession from something else. Not very many people who I can think of you've spoken to actually decided to become a surveyor early on because it was sold to them or it was interesting to them. And I've heard people say they came in because their father was a carpenter and they started doing some work or as a builder. Um, but other people have come in from all sorts of angles mm-hmm. in the profession. And I think it's disappointing um, that not more people are coming straight in. And I, I think it's remiss of the RICS not getting out and selling, surveying more actively to... To younger people. I mean, I, on the RICS 
publicity thing they sent around with the subscriptions this year, the Delivering Confidence to Society brochure, they proudly say that they went along to 85 schools during the year. Well, 85, there are over 4,000 secondary schools in the country. 85 isn't very many. Now, I know that, you know, they are trying hard. They've, they've spent some time and effort on it, clearly. But I think we need to be doing more. And there are opportunities for practicing surveyors to get involved alongside our ICS as ambassadors to go into schools. And I think that's something that we ought to be doing. It's a fantastic profession. What it they, is. It what is, they, yeah. What they sell and explain is brilliant. And I think the residential part of it is the best of the lot. (laughs) (laughs) But I might say that, mightn't I? Yeah, and I'd I'd, I'd say that the same as well. I think there's a couple of things there. You're right, there's a lot of surveyors on the podcast have said they accidentally fell into surveying. and But not all in a, oh, I've ended up being a surveyor. You know, a lot of them are like, wow, how have I only just discovered this later uh, on later yeah, I mean, on that, in life? And yeah. and you're right, it's a it is a surprise. And you're yeah, absolutely there's more that we can always do to, you know, to bring STEM into schools, but also surveying absolutely needs to be part of that. And I think we catch people far too late. It needs to be started yes. a lot, a lot earlier. My daughter tells me that she wants to be a savannah <laughs> surveyor, <laughs> but she is well, she just turned five. But also what I find interesting and something that I've noticed over the years is that particularly in residential, I think you need an element of maturity and life experience because when you're going into people's homes, you see life warts and all. Now, it's a great way of getting life experience, but also some of the things that you uh, that you find and some of the best surveyors that I've come across are those that aren't, you know, sort of straight from university or, or school. But those who have had that life experience might have run their own businesses, have done something else and can engage with customers quite well. So whilst, yes, I would like to see more youth, I think we all would. You know, I think there's an element of maturity in this sector actually helps us do you know do our job our job much better i completely i agree that it's essential that um there's a lot of experience required particularly if you're going out on your own i mean one of the the key areas of knowledge is building construction and pathology and understanding what happens to buildings and you can only get so much of that from textbooks you need to go around and see buildings and look at them and do it for several years before you really start to understand the sorts of things that can go wrong and how you you know follow the trail from one clue to another to come up with a conclusion and it does I, I agree it takes a, a degree of maturity to do that. Also dealing with people, um, mm. that takes maturity, being able to write well, communication, listening, all those things. I, I, and I slightly worry when I hear about people who've qualified as ASOCs immediately setting up their own businesses. I'm a great advocate of ASOC RICs. I think it's a fantastic way to get people into the profession, often from non-related areas but it does only give a base. And there's no reason why an ASOC with years of experience should be just as good as a surveyor as a full charter. I don't see there's any need necessarily to go on to full chartered status. Um, you can be a very good surveyor as an ASOC. But I do worry when people get the qualification and immediately say, well, I'm now setting up my own business because I just don't know they've got enough experience to do the job properly and when they come unstuck they are going to come seriously unstuck and it could be 
devastating for them and I wouldn't want that to happen. Yeah, some of the best surveyors I know, you know, are actually ESOC and they've just, yes. you know, they, they specialise in, in what they do and there is yeah. a lot of pressure and kudos I get to get your MRICS or, or fellowship, however far you want to go. And yes, it's a personal decision. But we, I think sometimes the industry can look at ASOCs as though they're, you know, not that good, but actually they're just, they've just taken a particular pathway. And actually, again, a lot of these people are mature. They've run yeah. businesses, they've done other things. Yeah. And, and I agree to, to an extent that setting up on your own from day one is a risk, but you, it's about having that network of support and people around you to help you not only run your business, but also the number of properties you've got on the clock, you know, the number of places yes. that, you, that you've been into. The yes. challenge is, it is really hard actually to find a job as an ASOC, even in this market, to do surveying or to join a small practice. You know, not everybody wants to w- work for a corporate and go onto no. that, that treadmill or, or actually do lots of the valuation. And I, I see a lot of that. So it's really hard to get your first one to find a mentor to get you to yes. that stage and then yeah. two to get you get you there and I guess one of the things that we've looked at, at Blue Box and myself with the Surveyor Hub is you know is the the business mastermind that I run which yeah. is to help those in that sort of early years if you like to to get some of that support but it is really really hard um let me ask you a lot of people will know you from from your books and your training that you've done over the years but how did how did you get started as a surveyor uh, well, by contrast with a lot of people who've been on the um, on your podcast, I went straight from school. But it wasn't an obvious thing to be doing. I got to that same stage in my last school years, not knowing what I wanted to do. My parents getting frustrated with me, trying to point me in a direction, identify what my interests were, and not knowing what to do. Looking back, I can see that I've always had an interest in buildings. I mean, I can still recall as a I must have been at junior school seeing the foundations of a bungalow being built that had been dug of where an allotment was at the end of my road. I can still picture it, so that fascinated me. And I still remember in the art class at school learning about ecclesiastical architecture, the different types of windows at the different ages. I've always had an interest in buildings, and I hadn't related that to a profession. My parents sat me down with my godfather when he was visiting once. He was in a, a, a... partner in a small practice in mid-Cornwall and um, he sat down and talked to me a bit about the day-to-day work and he reported back to my parents that I seemed utterly bored but what I do remember of what he said was that there's always something to do if the if the weather was good there's always something to do outside if the weather was rainy you could always do something in the office I certainly didn't want a job where I was stuck in the office my one of the threats was I'd end up working for a bank or Burton's the tailors. But I wanted to be out and I also like dealing with people. So I wanted a job where I could meet people, deal with people and be out of the office for a, a chunk of the time. And so um, I applied for a surveying course. I ended up at Thames Polytechnic straight from school. And really, it was just like extended school. I mean, there are advantages to student life, obviously, but it wasn't a campus based in London, it was not the classic student story. And I didn't particularly enjoy the learning. It was learning because I had to learn. Until at the end of the second year, we had two weeks work experience. We were sent out to real firms of surveyors. And I, I went round with a surveyor following in his footsteps and suddenly the light dawned. I saw him investigating some dampness in a house where dampness was coming out halfway up a wall. And 
he worried out the problem and worked out what was causing it. And it was fascinating. And other things that we did, doing a drains test and things like that, suddenly I could see the point of everything that I'd been doing. That motivated me for the rest of my time there. I then went to work in a general practice in London. I did a year in management, managing plots of flats in North London, which was mind-numbing because the landlords never wanted to spend any money. The tenants were always complaining and and it never ended. I don't think that's changed. (laughs) (laughs) It it never ended. I mean, you come into the office and every day was a problem. I then did a spelling commercial and that was just wheeler dealing and I'm not a wheeler dealer. I mean, ultimately, it just seemed like paper money. It wasn't real. But then I did some time in professional. And that was, again, a revelation. You're getting out, you're looking at real houses for real people, giving real advice on something that was important to them. We did rating evaluations. We did assessments of abattoirs all across the country, which is uh, something that you either could take or you couldn't, and all sorts of things, a whole range of stuff. And I, I started to get experience doing building surveys through that work. And my Bible at the time was an edition of Melville and Gordon's book, which I still got beside me on my desk here. Structural Surveys of Dwelling Houses, which this copy was given to me by the senior partner when I left because I'd worn his out while I was Mm -hmm. there. I I had it by my desk. I'd always go back to that book. And um, it's been beside me for the whole of my career. Fantastic book, really insightful, out of date now. But um, it it was having been able to turn to that uh, source of knowledge. Uh, From there, I went to Bristol and uh, joined a firm where I was doing structural surveys all the time. And I found that hard going. Doing, I were structural surveys is what we called them at the time, day in and day out. Looking at the houses was great, doing the reports, when you talk about dictating reports, having them typed, having them corrected, wanting a correction made, which meant the whole page retyped, trying to avoid that, fitting the right number of letters to avoid asking a secretary to retype it. Started to do some mortgage valuation work while I was there. And um, the thought was, why not go and join one of the building societies? But that seemed like a bit of a treadmill by comparison. And then the profession started changing. I, I could see, uh, I remember going to a meeting at a large hotel in Bournemouth. It must have been two or 300 surveyors from all over Bristol. I'm sorry, Bristol uh, were at this meeting. And somebody was there talking about the future of a state agency. And he predicted that huge chains of estate agents were going to develop throughout the country, that people would be bought up left, right and centre, that banks were interested in getting involved. And this is mind-blowing. The biggest practice in the country was about 15 branches at the time. And I remember the partners in the firm looking at each other thinking, oh, what's going on here? And then so then it started happening. This would have been during the mid-80s, I think, early 80s. And suddenly as this started happening, I realised that the firm I was operating in were going to get bought up by one of these banks. And I thought, I saw a job with Abbey National off, uh, advertised. And um, I thought well, I th- I'd sooner work for Abbey than who knows who. I might as well jump before I find myself somewhere else. So I, I applied, got the job with Abbey National, worked with them and ended up working with them for 20 odd years. But it was not just doing mortgage valuation work. I, I started 
doing that, obviously. Then, because of my expertise in structural surveys, they involved me in half a dozen other surveys in pilot scheme to do structural surveys for the bank, which they wanted done in Bournemouth, not Bristol. So they paid for me to relocate. And I thought, well, Bournemouth is not a bad place to be for a couple of years before, you know, we move on. I'm still here. <laughs> and then during that period, I I started over the over the years, the structure where I could see my career progression evaporated as they laid off one tier of management after another and devolved all the responsibilities further and further down the chain. So I ended up in, in the same name role virtually, became a senior surveyor as opposed to a staff surveyor. But in that time, I ended up doing complaint management auditing. I got involved in special projects to introduce computers. I was involved in the early work with Quest, introducing word processes and standard phrases. And then in the early 2000s, I was involved in the project introducing automated valuation models to Abbey, which uh, was you know, very interesting. And mm. one of the best parts of the work I found was actually managing other surveyors. I ended up managing the Southwest group of surveyors and panel from the M25 down to Land's End. And I really enjoyed that part of the job. Yeah, it's interesting talking at, um, you know, sort of working for a lender, because I think nowadays, those that would come into the profession sort of later won't remember that actually the lenders had quite big surveying departments, lots of them. And it sounds like you got involved in all sorts of different projects. I remember Abby used to have a, the report, was it called the Home View? something like that uh, the report on condition evaluation the rcv was yeah you know the, version yeah, yeah they, all, they all had their sort of own version of, right. of their of their surveys for customers and actually they were yes. really quite progressive in many ways in terms of looking after their customer and yes. i guess their portfolio was stock of houses that they would have on their you know charged on on their charge you know yeah it was in a way, we created a rod for our own back because um, moving into more detailed inspections meant that you started to put more down into mortgage valuations. You had the court case where the chimney stack fell in in 1980, and so there was a, re- a deemed... I think you're thinking of Smith v. Bush. Yeah, thank yeah. you for bailing me yeah. out there. Uh, so the, there was a deemed liability for purchasers if there was... I thought that uh, even though your client was a lender, the purchaser was also expected to be seeing a report because courtesy copies were handed out. So you then felt obliged to put more and more notes into the mortgage valuation report. So they became longer and longer. And then in the mid-90s, suddenly um, it dawned that actually we're making Rod for our own back because the more you say, the more you can be criticised for leaving something out. And at the same time, computerisation came in and the less you said, the easier it was to computerise. So then we introduced a series of standard phrases which summarised the condition. Two of us were tasked with the job of coming up with seven standard phrases which would classify all sort, every single house in terms of how good it is or how bad it is in just simple, seven simple phrases. And then things like the movement would come in underneath that. And those have stood the test of time, essentially, and they did the job. And that meant that there was the lack of capability to report. And what customers didn't realise is that surveyors were telling them less and less. And now, over the years since then, it's become even more mechanised so that, I mean, I don't know how many surveyors realise that their reports aren't actually read by anybody. They just go straight through a computer and out the other end. And the only 
only reason they go to a, somebody to look at is if they mention one of the key phrases. If something like movement gets mentioned, it might just get looked at by somebody on a team to assess the risk there. But most of them go straight through without touching the size. That's right. And, you know, the, they, go, they go straight through. Customers don't get a copy of the report. I mean, you know, there are some lenders and builders sites out there that, that still issue the report, but largely they don't get a copy of the report. And then now I hear that they, they don't, some don't even tell the customer the valuation. They'll just say yeah. the, the loan is approved. Yeah. You know, so that really does leave, leave the customer at risk and with not much information compared to what they think they're going to get. But it creates a, a fabulous opportunity for surveyors oh, to step up yeah. and to say, this is how I can help you. Yeah, it does. It really does create a wonderful opportunity. And the, the separation of the valuation from the survey, and this, the, the, you know, again, we've made a problem for ourselves by calling all surveyors valuers and all valuers surveyors. So we use the two words synonymously. There's no differentiation. But if if we could strive to use surveyors for the people who are doing surveys and valuers for the people who are doing the valuations, we would help ourselves and we would be able to sell that more readily to um, mm. the public because they also understandably use them synonymously. But it, it does create a great opportunity. So tell me, how did you, so you had your time at Abbey, how did you end up setting up by yourself? Well, they had a, another offload of a uh, tier of management and uh, I decided the time wasn't, I mean, I was 58 at the time and I thought if I'd been sticking with the job at Abbey till I was 60 when my official retirement age was, I thought I would have had enough. But actually being cast onto my own devices at 58 I thought you know I've got a couple more years in me I'd, I'll, and you know talked it through with my wife and I, we thought well there's an opportunity I've got an expertise in AVMs I can do surveys locally and I can offer this to lenders maybe there's something here so we said we'd give it five years there's no point doing it for less and if it works well we'll carry on so um so we we set up a company we we um, did all the things we needed to register for VAT because if you're talking to lenders, you want to look as though you've got a bit more substance behind you than you know just just somebody working from a garage. And so we, we got the, the those there, and then you say, well, what do we do next? Well, I knew that the RICS was doing something with AVMs because I've read bits and pieces. I didn't know what, so I just rang them up and said, can I come and have a chat about AVMs to you? And I did the same with the CML. And um, I went up to London one day and I met the CML, was graciously received, had a chat with them, explained what I was doing. They said, that sounds interesting. When I got to the RICS, they sort of locked the door behind me and gave me an interview for a job which I hadn't applied for and wanted me to work for them full time because they'd got an AVM conference organised in uh, at the end of that year where they didn't know anything about AVMs. And um, there are also other areas of my expertise that they wanted to draw on. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was start working in London again. I got out of London years earlier and I had no intention of going back again, but it was an opportunity. So we agreed that I'd work for two days a week as a consultant, not a member of staff. And, and so I started working with Graham Ellis and Georgie Hibbard and David Dolby and um, worked as part of the residential professional group there under Gary Strong. And we did a huge amount of good work there. I mean, I 
you know, say it myself, Graham, fantastic guy, such a loss to the profession. Mm. And David, under-recognised for the work he did for the profession, David Dolby, again, another sad loss. And people like Barry Hall, again, another person who died too young, working well on behalf of the jobbing surveyors, and that's not using it disparagingly, it's people who are under-recognised by the higher echelons and the wider sphere within our ICS. But during that period I was working there, we did, you know, a lot of good work was done and it continued after my consultants, my formal consultancy came to an end. But things like Sorry, I can see you want yeah, to ask a Yeah, question. I was going to say, what's what's quite interesting there is when you when you get the right opportunity, great things can happen. And obviously that was a bit of a golden era, perhaps, at our ICS, where things were, you know, being done and you 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 felt that change was happening. Yeah. Coming, there'll be a lot of surveyors out there who have perhaps sort of been through redundancy, you know, at 58, that's that's a tough old year to think, what am I going to do now? Have I got the energy to start up a new business? But one of the things I think surveyors forget about is their, you know, call it their mountain of value, you know, the the experience that they've got. Um, and I meet a lot of surveyors who perhaps suffer with a bit of imposter syndrome because they feel as though, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert like Philip Santo, who knows everything. But I'm sure, I'm sure at 58, coming out of that, you know, that, that, from that career that, you, that you'd had, that, you know, yes, you know, you felt you knew some subjects, but there's everybody suffers with, with confidence issues. But sometimes you've got to remember that it's everything that's brought you through to today. You know, and there's always something that you can, if you think more optimistically or if you open up your mind and look at the opportunities, you'll start to find steps forward and the opportunities will come out and then you can then go and take them. They might be different, you know, but I see see that a lot with with people. Yeah, there's a a couple of points there. First of all, you have to... I mean, the expression, you throw your bread on the water, you know, the, you, you get the fish coming up, but you've got to throw quite a bit of bread out first. And there's a footballing analogy. I, I think, no, I, no, maybe it wasn't football, but somebody said, oh, you were lucky to do that. You know, you were lucky with that. I was lucky to turn up at the RISS that day. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you can say it was good fortune, but the point is, the harder you work, the luckier you get. This is the thing you've got to accept that some of the things you try aren't going to work. I mean, the AVM business with RICS was interesting because I, you know, actually ended up managing a large group and got a paper published by RICS on AVMs, which is an important thing to do at that stage. But in terms of my consultancy in AVMs, it died a death because, well, two things happened. First of all, working with RICS, although it's theoretically two days a week, and actually bled into the rest of the week and it's very difficult to develop anything else of my own until my formal consultancy came to an end. But also, so 2008, 2009, 2010 was when the recession hit, and suddenly mm. lenders weren't using AVMs anymore. They were interested in appointing consultants. Yeah. And my backup role, I'd agreed terms of reference with the local surveyor to take his overflow work for residential survey evaluations to his PI. And of course, he, he didn't get any work any longer. So I'd got nothing. I did no surveys which I'd expected to be doing as this sort of the steady income while I tried to build up the business. But the RICS role provided the income which I uh, was looking for. And and more than that, it gave me further contacts. I mean, while I was there, we had the issue with off-site construction came up. So I put together a working group and we ended up 
putting together the build off site property assurance scheme through that. That was a key opportunity for RICS and the profession to get involved in off site construction. While I was there, the Japanese knotweed issue came to a head, and I could see we were getting calls coming from surveyors. How do I advise on Japanese knotweed? So, again, I took that one on board and then ended up um, asking Phil Parnham to write the 2012 guidance. And since then, I've retained an interest and developed an interest in the issues of Japanese knotweed, and I'm now writing the second edition, well, it's not a second edition because it's now going to be a guidance note, but the RSS have asked me to write the guidance note, which should have come out about four years ago. I'd been pressuring them to try and do it, but when they finally agreed that it was necessary, you know, we've had COVID in the way and things like that. Mm. So it will come out hopefully next year. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you say sort of about hard work will get you there. Well, actually... (laughs) It's not just hard work doing the surveys day in, day out, you know, and getting the numbers in. It's actually the hard work in expanding your network of contacts, you know, the the variety of work that you do, not necessarily taking on the risk of the variety of work, but just keeping an open mind as to what's out there. And I guess getting curious, you know, and once you do that, that's when you start to look at the different opportunities that that are out there, you know? Yeah. Yes, you're right. Curiosity, I think, is a key attribute for residential surveyors. I was thinking about what we might talk about, and one of the things was, what are the attributes of a, uh, an effective residential surveyor? Um, because uh, in my notes, you know, I said it's a rewarding and important career, but only for those whose personal attributes match its demanding requirements. I mean, health, you need health, obviously, and the capacity to you know, be physically active and get up and down stairs and into roof spaces. But you need to watch that. You need to recognise when you're not, when you're under par, because that's when problems occur. If you've Mm. got, you know, flu and you're not operating at full strength, recognise it because mistakes occur. When you get to my sort of age or even a few years younger, you need to have a pair of glasses. There was a, I had a complaint case against a surveyor. I know it was a, a company inspection. He couldn't see the woodworm at the edge of the access hatch under his eyes because it was too near for his close vision. He had to wear his glasses to see it, and he he refused to wear his glasses. <laughs> and you think you've got to recognise those things. Vanity must have come into it. There is, and, and just like a, an athlete, you know, going to do the hundred metre sprint. You make sure you're match fit. You know you're you you're 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 ready, and and that's something we talk about a lot at, at Blue yeah. Box is is well being and looking yeah. after ourselves, and that is for, you know from getting enough sleep to not too much booze at the weekend to yeah. eating healthily. And there's yeah. a lot of surveyors out there who don't take themselves a pat lunch. We've all got our favourite shops. I remember I, when I worked in Croydon, I had a fa- <laughs> sounds terrible. I had a favourite sandwich shop called Piggies. <laughs> Which tells you a lot about the, the sandwich that I used to have, you know, and it wasn't wasn't healthy at all. It was it was lazy, you know, drinking water. You know, a yeah. lot of surveyors don't drink a lot of water during the day, and that can really help your, you know, your mental yes. capacity and, yeah, and how you think. But then you've got the problems of, you know, where do you go to the loo and all exactly. of those things. Yeah. You know, but well-being is a, a really important part. But not just looking after yourself. I think there's something else underneath that. You, we've already touched on the knowledge of building construction. That's critical. And local knowledge is obviously important. But in terms of character, I think you need to be a detailed person to do this job well. If you're not a detailed person, I think it's, you, you'll tend to skip over stuff. 
you've got to be inquisitive. The, you need to have the forensic capability to examine a building at a forensic level to wonder why things are happening and then being tenacious enough to follow it through. Because if you don't have those characteristics, you'll come unstuck. And when I was managing surveyors, I was managing people you know, some of them were brilliant, but some of them were worrying because they just scooted around. They were used to doing mortgage valuations. When they were required to do more detailed inspections, they just weren't able to do it. They weren't interested in the pathology. They weren't interested in learning enough about it. They weren't interested when they were on site and they would just scoot through. I remember one one of the people I was asked to take over management of and in fact fortunately I wasn't asked to take over management I thought I might be at one stage and his his boss said to me his site notes are absolutely fantastic he said you look at his site notes you can read every single word and it's everything's down there you just look at it and that is brilliant and then you look at his reports you think what a well-written report he said unfortunately the site notes don't bear any relation to the report and you think well I'm pleased I'm not managing that survey I think you're right about being inquisitive and and being uh, being curious. And I think surveyors seem to feel that they need to be the expert in everything. But you know what? You you don't need to be an expert in everything. Yes, you need to have the technical skills, but you need to have the wisdom to know what to do in the right moment and have that curiosity. And that's actually the superpower of a surveyor: is getting curious and asking why. Yeah, and to know when you've when you've seen something you don't recognise and then to go back and find out about it because then you carry that with you. Nobody expects, if you're talking about one of the, the off-site forms of construction you've come across, nobody expects you to know the details of that. But once you've seen something that doesn't look right, you need to be able to go back and investigate it, take that on board and then you remember it in a, for, for the next time. So just going back to your point about being an expert, there was a time when Abbey National was setting up a a distance selling process, Abbey National Direct for selling mortgages. They're one of the first people into that area and it proved incredibly successful. They started with seven people in London, then they relocated to Bournemouth, soon had 100 people. Actually, they were brilliant at selling mortgages, hopeless at post-sales stuff. And later on, I actually went in to help sort out some of their process issues, which was quite interesting. But um, before that, we said as surveyors, we're only just around the corner. Shall we come in and talk to you about what surveyors do? And they said, oh, yeah, that sounds very interesting. So two of us went there and we started talking about what surveyors did when they went around the house. And these these uh, dozen people sitting around a table sort of looked at each other and said, but, but why are you doing that? And we thought, oh, what don't they understand? So we sort of stepped down a tier and started talking a little bit more basically about what the survey might involve rather than the details of what we're looking at. And they said, but, but why are you doing that? You know, what what do you, why do you... And you think, hang on a minute. And you step down another tier. And before very long, we were talking about why people needed evaluation to get a mortgage to people who were selling mortgages. And you think, we're operating at a completely different level to these people. They're selling mortgages, but we know so much about buildings. We don't appreciate how much more we know and how much further down we need to come to talk to non-surveyors. Oh, absolutely. And and that resonates. When I ran a complaints team a number of years ago, I used to go into, with, with some of my colleagues, would go into some of the banks and, and building societies and explain to complaints teams, you know, what a mortgage valuation was. 
you know, and these are people who, yeah. are, who are dealing with it. And yeah. it's a it's a big ask for people. You know, we might think, are you kidding me? You're working in a department, you're selling this stuff uh, and you don't know what it is. But it's the pressure that they're put under, you know, banks yeah. and building societies, they're, they're businesses just like, yeah. just like any other. But helping them understand meant that, it was it was helping them to help us to help them you know when we were dealing with uh, dealing with uh, with different cases uh, and there's a lot of non surveyors out there you know and it's yeah. the same for customers you yes. know we we yeah. we think we need to do a lot of explaining about <clears throat> different three different levels of survey and the customers just Whoa! <laughs> take a step back. Take a step back. I know. I know. You know. And I mean the three different. I mean that's such an important thing. I mean just thinking about where the profession is going. I mean I shan't be practicing for all that much longer. But the, the the document that the surveys of residential property that Phil Parnham produced in 2013, brilliant document, and that's proved the foundation for the home survey standard, which comes out in December or comes into effect in December, mm. and that it, it encourages me and worries me at the same time. When when the 2013 document came out and it started all about different levels of survey, I thought, great, for the first time we got a consistency and that'll work across the profession. If everybody adopts that, suddenly we can all talk to the public with one voice and you know, everybody will begin to understand what the choices are and what the options are that you're selling. And that's true of the home survey standard. But because of the way technology is going and because of the way different corporate firms are looking at utilising this to produce their own products within this format. And because it's written at such a high level and there's no detail there, sadly, in some areas, I think, but the, the, it just spells out the, the, the high-level requirements, what's going to happen is we're going to have three levels of surveying but the actual options available to people are going to diversify out of all recognition. So you'll be able to get a video survey from one company, a photographic survey from another one, an audio one from another one, a live one from somebody else, a, what I would recognise as a building survey in TypeScript, in PDF format, from somebody else. And how the customer is going to choose or, or to know I know that the standard requires you to explain how you're operating as a surveyor, rightly so, and it requires you to talk to the customer and explain what the differences are, rightly so, but how they're going to choose between the different, the plethora of different things which are going to be available in four or five years' time, I just don't know. I, just, I mean, Yeah, I have to say, I... Yeah, I have to say, I, I agree. I think there's a, a real risk that it could be very confusing for consumers. As, as a surveyor, it, it means, you know, whatever, whatever, however I want to produce my survey, whether it's on pink paper and sparkly writing, I can do that as long as it meets, yes. you know, meets the criteria. But on the one hand, you've got, you know, the, the different levels that were, were clear, but quite rigid for a consumer when they want, they want the whistles and bells. You know, and now we've almost sort of gone the other way. And I think particularly for SMEs, again, this is a huge opportunity to learn about the kind of report that you really want to give your customer, you know, and, and to yeah. really, you know, really go down into the detail because there's a lot of people out there who will use a standard format, will use standard paragraphs, but it's an opportunity to, you know, strip it back and say, okay, what kind of report do, do my customers want and do I want to offer? How does yeah. that work? What does the yeah. customer journey look like you know will I be doing video phone calls and, and videos or actually am I going old school you know and, and this is how I do that and you it's, it's, it could be 
potentially for uh, SMEs quite empowering. The next stage from that, though, is then how they market themselves and how they yeah. position themselves. <clears throat> And yeah. that's why learning about things like um, about social media and getting comfortable with, you know, having a presence. And that's something yeah. I've learned, you know, about surveyors. There are some who would rather crawl under a rock than do a Facebook Live. And I see that in some of the coaching groups that I run. I can yeah, encourage sure. them to do yeah. that. And they're really yeah. confident, but they'd rather not do that. And it's not, not saying that as a surveyor, you now need to be a superstar, <laughs> you know, and, and have your own YouTube channel. Yeah. getting comfortable uh, and owning what you do and, and how you do that. And that is, I think, going to be a challenge for many because they've never had to do that. You know, yeah. they've had work come through certain panels and certain routes and there's been a nice rigid format. And for me, it feels like customer experience is now catching up with surveying. But I agree, I think there's a risk that it's going to get quite confusing and messy for people. And they will naturally gravitate to surveyors and brands who have a clear offering. They've simplified how it's, how it's done. The danger is that they, you know, they get a a basic survey when really they need the, you know, the the whistles and bells. There'll be a really um, interesting, interesting time. Let me um, just moving on. Let me ask you about, uh, you know, how you got to write books and what made you want to write a book? (laughs) Well, again, going back to um, school, I always enjoyed creative writing. I used to write for the school magazine and things like that, and I I did well. I got the best uh, GCSE score in English in the school, much to everybody's surprise. But um, so I've, I've I've always enjoyed writing. But again, this is just something that happened when I was at RICS. Uh, well, I mean, I I write. I like to think legible readable reports so you know i'm used to writing in that way it's an important skill as a surveyor to do that but i was sitting there at rics one day and um georgia hibbard took a call uh, and or had an email and said um oh we've had an inquiry from a publisher they want a book updating would you be interested in doing that so i said oh i don't know sounds quite interesting so i replied and they said yes explained what I wanted. They'd had a book, uh, a series of books actually, done around the, um, what was it called, the government tried to introduce the... Um, oh, the HIPS, Home Information That's Act. right, yeah. Somebody had written a book about HIPS and the different ways purchases would operate and surveyors needed to operate in this new market. But of course that hadn't happened and these books were now out of date in terms of that and they just wanted them updating. So I said, okay, well, I'll I'll um, have a look at that. So um, they said, I will we'll tell you a bit more about them. And to my horror, they were written by Ian Melville and Ian Gordon. And <laughs> these, you know, as I said, this was my Bible. These are my gods of surveying. And there I was being asked to update their work. And I thought, you know, I'm unworthy. But then when I actually looked at the books, uh, I could see that they were still very much embedded in what the original book had been. I mean, almost literally in some cases, they'd been updated. They um, talked about, you know, many of the same things. One of the great things that the original, the the, 2013, the 2000 editions had in was lots of photographs and descriptions in the photos, which is fantastic because, you know, we're a very visual profession and to see mm-hmm. photographs is great. And I looked at these and I thought, but there's nothing on modern methods of construction. There's nothing on inspecting observatories there's nothing on you know all sorts of things nothing about environment insulation so i thought they need to be updated and there were two books actually there's one 
on assessing the age of properties. And that was fascinating, but it stopped at 2000. And a huge amount of property styles have developed since 2000. And how do you recognize a post-2000 property from a pre-2000 property? And then when I looked in more detail, so I mean, I agreed to do it, I signed a contract, but when I actually looked at it in detail, I thought the books would be the assessing age for book had been written the wrong way around. It started with the most modern and then got older and older. And I thought, no, it's just illogical. It should work the other way around. <laughs> you start with the oldest and work forward. So what the publishers and I initially thought would be, you know, a couple of months worth of work turned out to be about five years worth of work is nightmare. And the um, the book on surveying, the inspection reports on dwellings, inspecting, is over 300,000 words. I mean, it's big enough for a doorstop. But again, I was able to introduce, I mean, I, I, I love photography. I've carried a camera with me. I've carried, always carried a camera with me. So I got loads and loads of photographs of buildings and defects. So I increased the numbers of photographs, introduced my own text, rejigged that one as well, and um, produced a book. And that one, Inspection Reports on Dwellings Inspecting, my vision for that book was to support new surveyors or newish surveyors in the way that that original version of Melvin and Gordon has supported me when I started. The stuff there which is already out of date, the first chapters about the RICS products which are available and will evaporate shortly, I imagine. Uh, when the home survey standard comes in, they'll certainly need to be changed even if they continue in some form. But the day-to-day stuff, you know, how you identify dampness, problems with roofs, that's not going to go away. That's, you know, it's timeless. And if I've written a book which people find readable with a touch of humour and occasionally, and lots of photographs, lots of photographs in both books. So I do commend them, particularly to newer surveyors. It'd be great if people like Sarva would put them on their reading list if they haven't done that already. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, do... they, maybe, maybe, maybe they'll listen and, uh, <laughs> and, they, and, they can drop, and they can drop that in. But for, I know there's a lot of surveyors out there who, who obviously take photos as part of their, their day-to-day jobs. And also, because we're a bit geeky, we carry survey, you know, cameras around with us. And it's so easy now with the quality well, of now, photos yeah, that come with, with them, iPhones. Yeah. So, you know, you can always be on hand to take a picture on a holiday or whatever. Yes. But did, did you ever, you know, you got lots of photos. Did you, I mean, the key thing is you have lots of photos, but did you remember to annotate them, label them, save them <laughs> in a safe place so that you could come back 10 years later and use them? Did you always think about using that? Because I think that's a missed opportunity for lots of A's yeah. as they... You know, you can collect your your data and in, in, and things as you as you go along because you never know how your career is going to diversify. Uh, well, I to a point, yes, Lord Copper. <laughs> <laughs> so to a point, yes, I would. Um, if I was taken professionally, they'd end up in the file, and I always make sure I kept a copy for myself. I get two copies printed: one for the file, which will stay with the company, and one for myself. And I'd have an address with it, and I've got a pretty good memory. Unfortunately, there are a lot of, I usually take slides for myself back in the days of film. And those ones, I would, um, they would just happen to be where it was in the batch of slides. So I do have some which are more difficult to identify than others. But it's surprising there was a purpose of taking them. So if it was a cavity wall, tie failure, it's there. It's, there's a reason for it. And I can still go back to my slides and I can see this wonderful example of expanded metal forcing apart brickwork or lines of 
mortar pointing every five courses up this gable wall pointed in. I see you getting really excited about this, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just love it. I, and I, I come back to the point again. And, I, and interesting, going back to your previous podcast, I, I listened to the one, I think it was Kevin Keane early in September, the Scottish Surveyor. Mm-hmm. What enthusiasm for the job. That's great, just, isn't he? I yeah. just thought that was wonderful to hear him talk about it. And people are actually the people who should be going into schools and talking about being a surveyor because the, the beauty of resident when i talked to uh, i done lecturing at uh, portsmouth university talking to final year students there about the job the, the commercial area is the sexy bit you know you do big deals you make big money i remember my godfather saying to me on that day when he spoke to me in my uh, home he said you're never going to make a fortune being a surveyor but you'll never be poor. And to a point, that's still the case. And it's provided me with a good lifestyle, something, you know, I haven't got a yacht, but I've got a nice house. It's looked after the family for all the years. It has been hard work. The demands of the corporate employees in particular are particularly challenging. They're not going to ease off. When the dictaphone battery ran out at midnight on a Saturday, I thought it was probably time to stop on one occasion. <laughs> but setting up my own business was even harder work because but, but the, the rewards are more direct. You're doing it for yourself rather than for somebody else. And you, you asked, I don't think I answered the question, how did I get into training and presenting? And when you said to me earlier, I got slightly uncomfortable when you said Philip Santo, or people may say Philip Santo's the expert. I'm not the expert. I used to tell people, I'd go around and do office audits with surveyors and I'd do survey audits with them. And I'd say to them, I was the most privileged person because I went round half a dozen or a dozen surveyors doing audits in every one, and I would learn from each one of those something different. All they would get would be me every time. And I, mm-hmm. I, so I was the one who was learning all the time. And I've retained my inquisitive nature. So when I find out I want to know about something, I just want to share it with people. One of my, I mentioned already, I touched on inspecting conservatories. There's nothing in the home survey standard about inspecting conservatories. And yet, how many complaints come in conservatories? How are we supposed to inspect a conservatory? It frustrates me that there isn't any guidance. I am writing a paper on it at the moment, which should be published by the Journal of Building Survey Evaluation and Appraisal later, well, probably early next year now, because I think it's such an important part of the job is understanding the public perception of a conservatory is a bit different from the surveyor's perception and that's where that comes in but once I know something like that I just want to share it with people again going back to school I always enter the speech making competition I've done a bit of amdram a bit of amateur operatics so I've never worried about standing on a platform you know um, what if if they have had social media and Instagram back when you were in school uh, I bet you'd have been <laughs> all over it Philip <laughs> I probably would have been and that means I probably would have done even worse in my exams than I did mm. but uh, no I mean social media you you're right you castigate me because I'm one of those people who, I've got a website I set up the website when I set up the business and I keep wanting to go back to it and update it because it's still talking primarily about AVMs it doesn't talk about the work I'm doing now on expert witness on Japanese and Norwegian things like that but the trouble is I haven't got the time to go back for it I've got too many other things to be doing and, and I, I just so I think I also yeah I also think you know do you need to 
you know, if it serves a purpose, yeah. And, and a lot of a lot of small businesses I see spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. And actually, is their audience on LinkedIn? You know, in terms yeah. of customers, you know, actually yeah. most of them are on Facebook. Are actually Pinterest is where yeah. most, yeah. particularly women, are on. So stick a checklist on Pinterest, and you <laughs> you might find you have more more um, more, more traction. Yeah. But it's, you're absolutely right. It's about you know where where you spend your time, and you can worry about the I's being dotted and the T's being crossed. And that's in our, in our nature because we talked about yes. being very detailed we conscious. Yes, yes. But if it serves a purpose, as long as it's not wrong, you know, yes. and actually having a good LinkedIn profile during lockdown, I ran um, a free LinkedIn challenge for, for some of the surveys in the Survey Hub community. And, you know, LinkedIn, good LinkedIn profile, that will come up on Google. You know, yes. you can still start, you know, there's that, that famous quote by Arthur Ashe, the tennis player, start where you are, use what you have, do yes. what you can yes. you know you don't need yes. lots of money and investment particularly as an no. SME you can be quite agile you yes. just need to start so let me ask you what what's next for you then so you are you <laughs> heading to retirement well I keep uh, what I said to my wife a few years ago I said that uh, there's just one thing I'd like to do I'd just like to get the RICS guidance on Japanese knotweed updated and out of the way because I do have an area of expertise in there and people say, are you uncomfortable acting for people who are suing surveyors? Well, I don't just sue surveyors. I, I act for defendants as well as for litigants. And if I am involved in an action where a surveyor is being sued because Japanese knotweed is an issue or was an issue, I'd sooner it was me doing it than somebody who doesn't understand the issues involved because I can say to the solicitor, no, you, you know, there's not a case here. I've done on on many occasions. I said you may you may think there is. There's not. The surveyor's done everything he or she should have done on that occasion. And yet there are other other times when you think, what on earth was a person doing on that day? When there's a photograph on the front of the report with Japanese knotweed grown up beside the garage, and you think, how could you not have seen that? You know, there's just no defence available in those circumstances. So what am I going to do? I still hold the hope that I shall see the publication of the guidance, the updated guidance on Japanese knotweed. Should have been out, well, it should have come out early this year, finally, then COVID's got in the way. We had a meeting the other day uh, on it. I'm working on it at the moment. There's a working group involved. Where the RSS resources to get the publication out, I'm not sure because of lockdown and furloughs and things like that. But I try and get my bit done. And then hopefully by the spring next year, we'll get a new guidance. And then I shall feel I, I can draw a line and maybe then I'll say goodbye. But the trouble is, at that point, I'll probably get a whole load of law inquiries. And it's difficult <laughs> to say no, isn't it? You want to help people. I, I, what I th- You said a shame Instagram wasn't around years ago. I think it's a shame I'm not where I am now 10 years ago in terms of my business because I could have 10 more years of fun. The problem is, 10 years ago, well, a bit more than that now, if we go back 10 years to 2000, I could not have started my business. You didn't have the internet available. You weren't emailing people. You weren't doing Zoom conference calls. You start where you are and you make the most of it. The opportunity came up um, back in 2008. I was able to make the most of that opportunity, and I'm where I am now. And that's something to be grateful for. It is, but also, you know, you've made a hell of a lot of difference for a lot of people. 
you know, I mean, don't underestimate the impact your books have had for for learners and and, and students. Well, and if I can't even there, say so, you know? if, if can't even say so, if if that is the case, I mean, I do occasionally get people. Can you send me a signed copy now? <laughs> I'll sell you a signed copy. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's all about the fee. Um, but I do get people coming up to me sometimes uh, and say, uh, you know, how much they've enjoyed it. I used to write a column for the RSS journal called Case Notes, which was rehashing some of the complaint cases I'd been looking at. And that really struck a chord with practicing surveyors because, unfortunately, I think too much of the journal is theoretical, doesn't relate to, you know, the jobbing surveyors day-to-day role. But these complaint investigations were written about surveyors where mistakes had occurred or where complaints had been defended in some cases. They weren't just where somebody made a mistake. And I did, I don't know, 20 or so of those. And people used to come up to me at conferences saying, oh, where, where have they gone to? I used to enjoy reading those. It's very gratifying to get that sort of feedback. And if I have made a difference to people, well, I'm, I'm touched that you say that. I'm pleased to think that's the case because we do need help. You know, we aren't I, – I feel sorry for so many people working in isolation these days. In my early days, I was always in a team of surveyors. You know, there were four or five surveyors. You'd come back to the office and you say, right, spot valuation time, and you'd sit there and you'd, you'd talk about this – Oh, I remember it. I'd come back to the office and once everyone had got a brew and had to sit down, you know, then it would be the the chat. And it's a very different culture now. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I experimented with the Surveyor Hub. Yes, it's a Facebook group. Love it or hate it. You know, and particularly in the early days when it was a, a smaller group, that's what we'd have. You know, yeah. look what I've seen, or can I just ask? And, and and we still, you know, we still see a lot, a lot of that. And yeah. and it's important to know that that's out there, but also that you can create your own, you know, networks yeah. of support. Yeah. And and it surprised me how many surveyors didn't know other surveyors in their area. Yeah, you know, and, and we've got to reach out like that. Yeah, you see, I'm guilty of that myself because I mean, I, I do know literally two or three half a dozen surveyors in in my town because. When I was doing my valuations, I'd see lots of estate agents, but I wouldn't see surveyors. Mm. And I was working from home here for most of the time I'd been living here. So so when I was in the office, I'd see my own surveyors. We'd meet up. We'd have a a meeting of building society surveyors at lunch every three or four months. So you'd you'd meet surveyors that way. But once you're working from home, you don't get that, that connection any longer. And once you're working on your own... and the work that I do now is nationally based. It's mainly business to business. So I don't get involved with local surveyors very much. You know, occasionally, funnily enough, I, I went to a course uh, a year or so ago and bumped into somebody who works 200 yards away from me. And there are, I mean, there are only 20 of us, there's only 10 of us all at the course. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a strange experience. But we do need support. And it's great that the technology is available now. I mean, yeah. When you talk yeah. about how do you identify Japanese knotweed, you've got an app on your phone. I hope people have got apps on their phone yeah. to show them what knotweed looks like. And also there's there's now an app I've got which identifies all sorts of plants. You just point it at a plant, take a photograph, and it'll tell you what the plant is. Brilliant. So that should never be a problem any longer. Also, things like Google Images. Fantastic. If you want to see any defect in the building other examples of it just type under google images the problem that you've got and you've got 
millions of images showing you other views of it. What a fantastic resource to have available. And then to be able to Zoom chat to people, you know, sit face to face and have a chin wag in the same way. It's not the same as bumping into people in the corridor, but it's it's a good second best. And yeah. it is the way forward. And I think the Surveyor Hub is a great thing. And if I had a Facebook profile, I would have joined a long time ago, well, but I don't. Well, and I'll well, maybe Philip, one. <laughs> well, maybe Philip, when you've retired, you can become a, one of these silver surfers and uh, get your own Instagram account. <laughs> compete, yeah, well, compete with Kevin Keane. He's got quite a good Instagram account and um, we'll see you on Facebook. Look, it's been really, really lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed it's been a talking pleasure, to Marianne. you. I, I mean, and, talking, uh, yeah. talking about the subject I know most about. Yeah, lovely. Me. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.